unto thee, O Lord. Do I lift up my Good evening. Good evening. Appreciate so very much you being here tonight. Uh, it is time for us to begin our Wednesday night Bible class. And it's always a joy to be together. It's been a while since I've been in the auditorium. And I'm excited about being a part of class. And I hope you've got your Bibles. And we'll continue our study here in just a minute. But before we do that, or as we begin... Um, there are a number of people who are on the sick list. Of course, you've got a bulletin with a number of people. There are several people, I'm not even going to try to name, 
uh, of our congregation and those uh, in our associations who are coming down with the flu. The type A flu seems to be making its way now around. I have several students who have tested positive for the flu and uh, Jonathan called me. Uh, you'll have to forgive me tonight. I will have to rely on my notes a little bit. Uh, uh, Jeremy asked me, do you have a PowerPoint? I said, uh, no. I found out about 4.15, Jonathan texts me that uh, Isaac uh, tested positive for the flu and, and Jonathan was going to be tested um, this afternoon. So I don't know what he found out, but I don't think he was feeling well either. So um, you'll have to put up with me for a little while tonight. But also, uh, Joan Mormon, uh, you may not know this, but Joan Mormon fell again this afternoon and broke her shoulder. And she is in a great deal of pain. It, it's even more so than just the fact she has a broken shoulder. I understand there's a, a good bit of swelling. And what the doctor needs to do, uh, he cannot uh, treat her until the 28th of December. And she is in a great deal of pain, um, a tremendous amount of pain, Luther says. So um, she needs our prayers especially uh, for that. Um, so we'll do that. And are there any others that we need to uh, put on our sick list or our prayer list tonight? Terry Nix. Yes, ma'am. Father, we are mindful tonight of your goodness and your grace. Father, we are so humbled.
to be in your presence as we come before your throne on the bended knees of our hearts. Thankful, Father, for your Son, Jesus. Thankful that we can gather in this place, that we can study your truth, that we can apply it to our lives. As we begin our prayer tonight, Father, we are uh, reminded that there are so many who are sick. You have heard their names mentioned tonight. There are those who are uh, struggling with health problems, who are facing uh, cancer treatments, who are struggling with the flu and uh, pneumonia and COVID and combinations of those things. Father, you know those individuals' needs better than we do. And I pray tonight, we pray tonight that you will be with each of them, be with their caregivers, be with their families. Help them as they go through this time of challenge with health and this sickness and pain. We especially pray tonight for our sister Joan, who uh, broke her shoulder today and is in a great deal of pain. And Father, I pray that you will bless her with the ease of that pain in accordance to your will, that she would be able to uh, have ease until she can be treated properly. That treatment would be successful. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to open your Bible tonight, and may we do it with a clear mind and a ready mind and a willing mind so we might live your truth every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now tonight, as we think about, and and again, um, I'm here tonight, and I think Jonathan's out of town next week. I think Guy's probably uh, teaching next week. And so I want us to to have as much continuity as possible. We are talking about uh, a series of studies designed to help us as Christians understand morality. Morality as the Bible defines it, as the Bible unfolds it, as we live it in opposition to and in tandem with, or, or maybe uh, in the midst of, is a better way to put it, a world that very often does not live as God would have us to live. And so we have, uh, I know that the lesson, you've talked about abortion a little bit, you began to talk about fornication a little bit, and I want us to continue that thought, but back up just a little bit with a little bit of foundation from a perspective that I did a series of lessons several years ago, and I, in just a few minutes, I put some things down on paper, and forgive me if I have to look down, uh, that I want us to think about in regard to this important subject. Now, don't misunderstand. Our goal is to open our Bibles and understand. In fact, I wrote down on my paper, if you gave tonight's thoughts a title, it would simply be this. The Christian and morality, there must be a clear understanding. There must be a clear understanding. Now, Jonathan said to me as we were, we were talking a little bit about tonight, he, or corresponding via text, and he said that one of the, some of the feedback he'd gotten was that this needs to be taught to our young people. Now, I, 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 that's been kind of sitting in my brain a little bit and thinking about that as I was thinking about this lesson tonight. From our standpoint, if we are those who are going to recognize and 
uh, combat with the word of God, anything that is immoral, unethical, impure, uh, just simply not right, as we are trying to live right, then we have to understand what the Bible says about it. If we're going to be those who are lights, according to uh, Matthew chapter 5, if we're going to let the way we live be lights, then we have to understand what that means. And that's certainly true in the realm of morality. And if we're going to be those, so let me get down to that, to that focus. If we're going to teach those who are coming after us, then not only are we going to have, do we have to live it, we have to understand exactly what we're supposed to be living, but we also have to understand what it is we're supposed to be teaching. And so all of this in the arena of a study that has to do with morality, I want us to begin with that thought. The Christian and morality. There has to be a clear understanding. Okay, if I were to ask the question, who is a Christian? That answer would be rather uh, simple, wouldn't it? Or at least I think it would. Who is a Christian? Well, Acts 11 and verse 30, uh, 26 says, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Those who followed Jesus. Disciples. Now you'll forgive me tonight. I often uh, ramble anyway, but especially when I have not uh, spent a lot of time in preparation, I may ramble more than I should. So feel free to say, uh, hang on, you're rambling. But when I think about the word disciple, uh, a student is someone who follows the, uh, the teachings. Someone who is taught and follows those teachings. That's a student. But a disciple is more than a student. A disciple is someone who follows the teachings of a teacher but follows that teacher as well because that teacher is worthy of being followed. Disciples of Christ were Christians. Well, then I look at Galatians 2 and verse 20. If you've ever been to camp, you've probably sung that song. Many of you can quote that passage. Galatians 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the answer to the question, who is a Christian? Someone who is a follower of Christ? Someone who is bought with the blood of the Lamb or redeemed, saved in the blood of the Lamb? Someone who is determined to live a life of faith in Christ and service to God? Wouldn't you say that's a pretty good answer? A biblical answer of who, what a Christian is? Yes or no? Okay. So now... That was the easy question. What is morality? Uh, Webster's Dictionary says that morality is the quality of being morally right. Now, Webster's not the, uh, uh, the end all here, just a starting place. Of being morally right, virtue, conformity to the standards of right conduct. Okay, so morality is... Conformity to the standards of right conduct. Okay, I get that. The quality of being morally right. But then, that's great, but that begs the question, what then is morally right? Somebody has to decide that. Somebody has to decide uh, what that is. Well... So then... 
Did you, uh, we have to let the Bible be our guide for what is right, for what is moral, for what is ethical, as opposed to the world standards. That is that pretty much what you said? Okay, you agree with that, right? So when I think about from that perspective then, morality, according to what God says is, okay, or morality is doing what we know to be right. So who tells us what we know to be right, what is right? Do you know what the term situational ethics is? You heard that term anywhere? That's an old term, actually. It's been around quite a while. Situational ethics. What's it mean? The idea that when something, they try to make a case specific where it may be wrong in one instance, it might be right in another instance if the circumstances are different. So what is right is based on the situation, the circumstances. What is right in this instance might be wrong in this. What is wrong can, by this, in, the, in the understanding of this group of people might be not wrong when you get into another situation with another group of people in another place. Does anybody see the danger in that? The problematic uh, possibilities in that? Let me ask you a question. Before we go any further, let me turn that around. I think, personally, this is just my opinion, that we can get a better concept or a better understanding as we dig into the truth, and we're about to, of what right is or what morality means if we think about the word immorality. What is immorality? Wrong? Okay. Going against God's righteousness. Okay. Now, if you think I've lost my way here, I really haven't. I've, I've got a plan here, sort of. What is the absence? Let me, may I change gears just a minute and ask a different question? Those are good answers, by the way. Let me ask a different question. What is the definition of darkness? No, okay. Yeah. Did any of you say, well, that's kind of hard to... Uh, did you know that there is no such thing as darkness? Darkness doesn't actually exist. And some of you are thinking, what? what? Turn off the lights and I'll show you. Light, I mean, darkness isn't an element. It isn't an entity. It, is, it has no quality. It has no form. It has no shape. It has no elements. It is simply the vacuum left when light goes away. It's the void, it's the empty space left by light, it's the absence of light. Immorality is the void left when morality is not there. When God's righteousness is absence, what's left in its place is immorality. We make up our own rules. In fact, I remember Judges 21, 25, and I may have... Me, misquoting, I may have the numbers wrong, but one of the, the most powerful verses, and if JT, if you're, I mean, uh, uh, if you're checking me, JT, please do. Judges 21, 25. In that passage, I haven't forgotten what it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. That was the days when Samson and Gideon and, and others had to rise Jephthah because they got into trouble, because they were getting into all kinds of uh, sinful behavior because they were rebelling against God. There was no king, no authority. What does the rest of that verse say? 
In those days there was no king in Israel, and, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when we do that, then we find ourselves in a difficult situation. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. And someone find Philippians 4 and verse 8. Both of these passages contain a word that is important. Now, I have no... Um, I understand that I won't get through with everything that I want to cover tonight, uh, but that's okay. Someone read Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. Supplement your faith. King James says, add to your faith. Supplement, add, fill in, fill up your faith with virtue. Did you hear that word? Virtue. Hold that word. Now, who's got Philippians 4 and verse 8? True, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is any... What were you reading from? ESV? Um, the word virtue, I can't remember which word the ESV uses. What was the, read that again, let me listen better. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Hmm? The word excellence. The word excellence, the word virtue. That has, when you look it up in the Greek, you know what it means? Now, I know for a moment you're going to think I'm probably veered off topic here, but this is going to coincide with what we've been teaching uh, in the teenage class. I've had the privilege of being out there on Sunday night, and, and I keep thinking we need to teach. Someone says, okay, this, this topic, morality, things about morals need to be taught to our young people. I totally agree with that. In these two verses, 2 Peter 1, 5, Philippians 4, 8, excellence, virtue, add that, think about those things. That word meditate there doesn't mean to th just sit and think about. It means that you add it to your consciousness. You add it to who you are mentally. In other words, in your storehouse, and that's what we've been talking about in the teenage class, that the storehouse of your heart... The storehouse of your mind has to be something that is always bubbling with things that are good. It's there. It's not just something that you run into and try to find something good. You think on, you, you meditate on things that are virtuous. That virtue there, that word, that excellence literally means moral excellence. Knowing what's right as opposed to what is not right. Knowing how to think, how to behave, and, and how not to behave... That's moral excellence, that's virtue, and that's something that must be a part of my faith. It's something that must be a part of the storehouse of my heart. Now, with that said, and I hope it fits this lesson. I think it does. But when I started with them just a couple of weeks ago, and we're, we're getting into Philippians 4, 8 pretty deeply, we went to a parable. Jesus taught, uh, not a parable, 
Jesus told an incident. He said, uh, it was in the book of Luke, when he, a, a man, um, he said, if an evil spirit is cast out of a man, it wanders in the dry places, in the desert places, uh, looking for a place. Okay, first of all, and I don't want to, um, this is a sermon I'm working on. The evil has to be cast out. Everybody agrees with that, right? We have to know what's wrong and get it out of our hearts. Nod, nod your head like this. That's definitely, nobody disagrees with that, right? We have to talk about what's wrong, not what the things we should not do. We must keep them out of our hearts. Absolutely. You agree? Now, but if you read that very carefully, Jesus said that evil spirit will go, and if he doesn't find a place to dwell, he'll come back. And if he finds that house, what? Empty, swept and garnished, swept and all neatly tied up, but there's nothing there. He'll go and get seven other spirits worse than himself. That word seven is, a, is symbolic of completeness. And he'll come back and the latter end is worse than the first. So this is the message that I'm trying to get across from God's word to our young people in our teenage class is that getting evil out of your heart Staying away from immorality and sin, that's only half the battle. It does no good if I know what's wrong and I talk about this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, stay away from it, but I don't fill up the container of my heart with good things. Because that is what keeps the sin out. That's what keeps immorality out of my life is not the fact that I recognize it and say, oh, that's an immorality. I know that's wrong. I'm not strong enough by myself to keep it out. Only the righteousness of God is able to do that, and that righteousness has to be brimming over from the inside of my heart. And so that has been the idea, and I think that fits these two verses Tell us, I need to make sure that moral goodness is a part of the overflowing container of my heart, which becomes my life. And so then the focus, my life, my morality, God's plan for the two. Okay. So these things need to be taught to our young people. Who needs to be doing that teaching? Parents first. Okay. I suggest that it isn't the church's job. Now, it certainly is the church's responsibility to teach the Word of God and guide everyone, including our young people. But it isn't the Bible class's responsibility. They are backup. It isn't the church's responsibility. They're backup. That has to be taught from ground zero and taught in a way that makes a difference in their lives. Now, like I said, I know that we're not going to be able to cover everything that I uh, put together here. But there are three Bible foundations. We're thinking about, okay, I want you to think about it from this perspective. I want to be an individual who can, in every opportunity I'm given, to be a teacher of morality versus immorality. God's way versus the world's way. God's way versus Satan's way. I want to be that teacher. I want to be that influencer. There are three foundational things that I have to understand, I have to teach, and I have to apply in order for that to happen. Now, if you, those of you who know me know I hope he doesn't try to do all three. We'll be here all night. No. We'll just start with number one. Absolutely. 
It is not the church's responsibility to take hold and try to teach children, but it is if you know that there is a child or child going quit church or going through problems and there's not a parent, there's not two parents. And you know what I'm trying to say? Oh, okay. It is God's responsibility. Get that child that talk to that child. I think, uh, uh, if you heard what Marilyn said, is that, let me clarify, I think what we need to do, not clarify, but re, uh, re-clarify perhaps, is that instead of saying whose responsibility is, rather maybe we should talk about when that responsibility should start. It starts at home, it should be happening there, and then added to that are the layers that come when that child begins to go through Bible class, when that child becomes a member of a youth group, when that child is a part of a family uh, in a spiritual sense. That's everybody's. You know, people made a, a fortune off of a book called It Takes a Village many years ago, talking about the influences of raising a child in the world or in America. Uh, folks, we have that responsibility as Christians to help one another. Uh, with ourselves and with our children and, 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 vice versa, and back and forth. But the church can't do it all by itself. There has to be... So you're absolutely right, especially when a void exists, especially when there is a, an absence, we have to do the best we can. as well as we should. Um, that goes back to, I think, what the um, part of the crux or the thrust of this entire series is and should be is that we must be willing to speak up, to speak up about what is right versus what is not right and speak up not just, and for some reason, and, and I don't, this always comes to my mind because I'll never forget it, though, it was, though I don't believe that the, the elder who said it, and this was in uh, Tennessee, meant anything out or wayward about it. It was just the way he said it. It made me think, is that our mindset? I really hope not. The preacher there at Sevierville, sorry, preached uh, on every uh, anniversary of Roe versus Wade. He preached a, a sermon on abortion. That was just what he did. And I was there that day, and um, the elder at the end prayed in his prayer. And again, please, I, I mean, no disrespect. Forgive me if I sound judgmental. That's not my place. But he made the statement, thank you for this strong lesson, uh, or maybe it was in his comments, if we ever need this, we'll be able to use it. And I'm thinking, I wonder if we are in that, boxed in 
condition that we think if everything is rosy in our own space that we don't need the Bible's teachings on what's going on in the world because, folks, it's going on with or without us. It's going on with or without us. And it's influencing. It's influencing our children. It's influencing their friends. It's influencing those of us uh, that we don't even realize. It's influencing our, well, it's influencing those we care about. And we try to help them, but we don't know how. We've got to be willing to, to, to speak up. For example, turn to Jeremiah 8 and verse 12. Great segue. Uh, Marilyn, I hope I didn't cut you off. But great segue into this verse. Jeremiah eight twelve. Very first thing is that we must understand, we must be taught, and we must teach that, number one, God expects His people to be moral. God expects His people to be moral. They will never give the standard He gives us of morality. But we'll start with there's an expectation that God caught up in trying to balance our lives and trying to balance the lives of our children and our grandchildren in a way that they are able to, to still be Christians and still fit into the world. And we better be careful that we don't lose sight of some principles that are clearly found in God's Word. And the first one is expectation of the moral character of his people. Read Jeremiah 8 and verse 12. Now, in that particular context, uh, Jeremiah is addressing um, God's people, addressing a group of people, and he says, abomination, simply meaning uh, there are things that are being practiced. There are people who are doing things with one another, and they're doing things in their social lives, and they're doing things in their business lives, and they're doing things in their private lives, and they're doing things in their... Public lives that simply are abomination. You know what the word abomination means? Hmm? Sin. Sickening in the eyes of God. Something that is absolutely repulsive to God. And if it's repulsive to God, it ought to be repulsive to His people. But what was the problem? They committed these things. They did these things. They behaved this way, but they had lost the ability to... Blush. Somebody explain uh, to us what what does the the reaction of blushing, blushing? What is its purpose? What is blushing? Embarrassment. embarrassment? That was somebody said embarrassment. What else? Why would I blush in embarrassment? There's a shame aspect to it. There's a shame aspect to it. Now, I, mean, I don't mean the embarrassment that comes with doing, you know, silly or foolish things, you know, that, that we've all done when, you know, we fall down in front of people and we do things like that. I'll never forget when I, uh, the first time I preached at the congregation in Fulton. Anybody ever been to the Fulton church building? 
there, if you haven't, they have a, a stage like this, except it's about right here is where the floor of it is. And there's, it's a straight drop. And I was preaching and I was moving around and I felt my foot going off and I was leaning forward. Another half an inch and I would have face planted the Lord's Supper table right in front of 250 people. Now, that would have been an embarrassing situation. But it's not the, it's not the blessing he's talking about there. He's talking about the, the blushing, the embarrassment that comes when I know... What did it say in Genesis when Adam and Eve were naked and they were what? What? Why were they ashamed? At the moment, they were in a situation they knew they should not be in because of what they'd done. Now, I don't pretend to know all that was going on there, but I know all that I need to know. They were ashamed. That's the same understanding of Jeremiah. These people had lost the ability to blush. They saw things, did things that ought to make them embarrassed to keep looking, but they didn't stop looking. Do you think that is a problem today? What happens when we no longer are embarrassed by the sinful things that we see? What could happen? What's the danger? Before we get, before we're lost, let's just back up a step. What'd you say, Miss Sister Sue? Your conscience, even before that, even before that, you begin to think it's all right. Your conscience is seared. Yes, and yes, but even before that, when I stop turning away in embarrassment, then I am continuing to look. You read James chapter one, beginning in verse thirteen that no one, uh, God, uh, let no one say when he is tempted, he is tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, evil, neither does he tempt anyone. But everyone is tempted when he is what? Drawn away of his own lust and enticed. You cannot have. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5 and verse 28? No, wait, that's the wrong word. That's the wrong verse, I think. Whosoever looks upon a woman to blank lust after her has committed. Well, now, that's a little harsh, don't you think? Because there's been no physical contact. Uh, Y'all do realize I'm being facetious, right? So why did Jesus say, don't even look? Because if you keep looking, what happens? Come on, y'all talk to me. Y'all killing me up here. Is that true? And if you keep if you keep upset, accepting, you what? You eventually fall into it. You cannot be drawn by something that doesn't interest you. You cannot become interested in something that does not uh, attract you. You can't be attracted by something that you do not look at or think about. And you don't look at or think about something that you don't give attention to. So, they couldn't blush. Uh, turn to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. Now, 
any lesson that involves a study of morality will find itself in Romans 1 more than one time. I'm quite certain. But if you look at Romans 1 and you begin to look at verse 22, we won't read all of this for time's sake, but I want you to look at verse 22. It starts at verse 18, but in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of God into the incorruptible God or of the incorruptible God, into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, creeping things. That's idolatry. Something became more important to them than God. Something had their reverence more than God. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies. Now, here's what I wanted you to see in verse 25. Here's where... Now, the process had begun. The process had begun already... But look at what happened in verse 25. Who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the Creator and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Now, you can disagree with me if you'd like, but there where it says began to worship the creature more than the Creator, I don't think that's talking about an idol. I don't think that's talking about a four. Uh, began to worship what I want more than what God wants began to be more concerned about what makes me happy as opposed to how am I happy through my service to God. I want you to notice they exchanged the truth of God. Okay, you understand, let's, before we run out of time, I don't want to just cover these verses without making a practical application. Remember in Jeremiah 8 and verse 12, they committed abomination and they could not what? Blush. Okay, there's only one way. Now, this may sound like a trick question, but I promise it's not. In order for me to be embarrassed and blush because I am in the presence of or participating in something I know is is morally wrong, not right, according to God's Word, I have to first what? Know God's Word. Who said that? I have to first, Kevin, you're right, know God's Word. I, there has to be, I know the line. I know the distinction. I'm not going to blush if I don't have a standard that lets me know when I ought to blush. That's what we have to teach. That's what we have to understand. Here, they exchange the truth. That makes it absolutely positively clear in Romans 1. They couldn't exchange something that they did not know. If I can exchange the truth for a lie, if I can exchange my service to God for something else that makes me happy, I have to recognize that there is a right, that there is something that pleases God. Therefore, when I make a choice to go the other way, then I'm not pleasing God. Now, it is very possible, no, I'm not excusing any behavior, that those lines have been stepped upon and blurred and colored and tra- trampled and recolored and discolored and, and until many people in the world are completely confused. Again, there must be a call for those who know the truth to speak it, to speak the truth. Okay, let's do three more verses together. Jude, the first verse of Jude... Somebody get that. Somebody get John 8, 34. 
and Romans 6, 16 through 18. First verse of Jude. John 8, 34. And Romans 6, 16 through 18. Okay. Who's got the first verse of Jude? Go ahead, Jeremy, please. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, the loving God, the Father, and the of Jesus Christ. To those who are called and those who are sanctified. What now? The loving God, the Father, and the Care for Jesus Christ. Hmm, interesting. Hold that thought. Now, uh, you can tell I'm old when he reads in the ESV and I respond to him in King James. Sorry. But care. Uh, anybody else catch that? Look at uh, John 8 34. Who would somebody read it? Jesus said, Who so? Oh, go ahead, please. Whoever commits sin is a servant of sin. Jude says we've been sanctified and we're kept for the Father. Okay? Now, the kicker, it ties these verses together, is Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Do you not know that the whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you're the one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? God may think that enough you were slain of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free of sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When you look at those three verses, we find the difference, the difference between being moral and being immoral. The difference in living a moral life for God and an immoral life in rebellion to God is a very simple equation from those three verses. The difference is simply who's in charge. Who's in charge of my life? Who is keeping my life for God? Who is, uh, who, to whom I am a slave, I am a servant. Am I a servant to righteousness? Now I want you to stop and think for a second. I wish we, we had more time. Go ahead and turn to Titus 2 as we wind down here. But the difference is who's in charge. When you think about the idea of, of being a slave to righteousness, he, that's very different. Hey, do you know what's righteous? Most people in this room would say yes. Uh, could you look into the lives of your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, look into the lives of, of your neighbors in your own life and say, hey, that's an act of unrighteousness. I saw this on a movie. That's unrighteous. I saw this. Uh, 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 they're marching in Washington about this issue. Oh, that, that's, that's immoral. That's unrighteous. I know that. Could you make a list? If I ask you to, and I'm not asking you to, could you sit down and make a list on a sheet of notebook paper 20, 30, 50 things that a Christian should not do. Yeah, I think so. But that passage doesn't say don't go about making sure you don't do bad stuff. He said if you're a slave 
of righteousness, then you're no longer a slave of unrighteousness. You're no longer a slave to sin. Why? Because your very life is completely controlled. You don't just do what's right. You don't just avoid what's wrong. And I'm afraid, forgive me if I sound judgmental, but I fear that in my own life that I've done this and been guilty of doing this in the teaching of my own... In the teaching of my own children that I simply have pointed out all the things you shouldn't do. Instead of saying, be a slave of righteousness so that you don't have time or the inclination to do what you shouldn't do. And you say, isn't that the same thing? Not even close. But I wanted us to read Titus 2, 11 and 12, and somebody at least read it. Please. Worldly passions, and you live self controlled, upright, godly lives present. The grace of God teaches us that. You said the Word of God does that. It does, but so does the grace of God. Let me ask you this Where does the grace of God reside in a Christian? Where? In your heart, in your life. So it's your own heart that's teaching you to do what's right and not do what's wrong? Yes, through the grace of God. Well, that was a very quick lesson, and I appreciate your attention tonight. Uh, Hope you have a great night. Thank you for listening.